Every so often, the world witnesses a life-changing event. Something happens that affects how people live, an invention like the wheel or a discovery like penicillin. Sometimes events change how people see the world. 9-11 made us suspicious of religious fanaticism. The world wars made people suspicious of authority in general. I wonder what COVID-19 will do to us. We are in a time that will be talked about for years and years to come, I think. We all know where we were when 9-11 happened. I think the question will be, what were you doing when the coronavirus of 2020 happened? But we are going back today to a moment in history that some claim to be the event in human history. We're looking at six hours that changed history that centres on someone who splits history into two, into BC and AD, an event that was at the centre of God's activities in his world. Six hours on what we call Good Friday. To the casual passer-by, six hours is not much time, really. Six hours of routine, six hours of what might be expected, enough time to get through most of a workday, half of a shift in a hospital, enough time for a mother of an infant to go through three cycles of, of naps and feeding, enough time to watch a baseball game and a hockey game on a Saturday afternoon. But this was a Friday, six hours on a Friday, six hours on that Friday, six hours that changed the world. But those six hours were no normal hours. They were the most crucial hours in history. During those six hours, there are three moments and signs which show the magnitude of what happened there. I'll briefly speak about each of these and then ask a question to fuel your reflection um, at the end of each of those sections. Feel free to write those down. Perhaps take some time to meditate on those afterwards or on your own or, or with others. I want to leave enough space for us to enter into being there, to feel the dusty ground beneath our feet, to, to taste uh, the, the, the struggle in our own saliva that chokes us with the events of what goes on, to feel the clamminess in our hands. It was the third hour, we are told, in verse 25, when they crucified Jesus. It was around 9 a.m., Jesus had not slept all night. It was a night of betrayal. A disciple betrayed him, another denied him, the rest just ran off. It was a night of puppet trials, dragged between countrymen who wanted his death and the Roman authorities who wanted nothing to do with him, but were forced to engage with him to prevent chaos. It was a night of humiliation and of hatred scourging, spitting, splitting his body, his, his skin, dehumanized, degraded, dressed up as a king like a doll, a crown of thorns put in his head with royal garments that were cast lots for, condemned, condescended, and now carrying the beam of his own cross. Being too tired to carry it himself, and so a stranger is ordered to come and carry it for him, he is crucified crucified with criminals, 
the most callous and public of human torture and punishment, raised up in the sky so that everyone could see, seen as a curse by the religious, as condemnation by the Roman oppressors. The only thing worse than dying alone is dying amidst ridicule, mockery, abuse, reviling. He gets it from the crowd, he gets it from the criminals next to him. People wagging their heads, pointing their fingers, throwing accusations. You saved others and you can't save yourself. You're a joke. Nailed mercilessly and roughly against two beams of rough wood, darkened by blood of previous victims. It was the third hour when they crucified him, nine in the morning. Verse 33 of Mark 15 says this. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. The bright noonday sun casts its normal shadow on the Judean countryside for the shepherd feeding his sheep, for the youngster heading back home, for the carpenter taking a rest in the hottest part of the day. And then suddenly, there's a blackened sky. The air suddenly turns cool, no thunder or lightning, but just darkness, a thick darkness clouding the sky. The feeling is eerie. Some rush to light their lamps, some rush to others to be reassured, others just stand and are bewildered. This is our first moment, our first sign. There was a cloud, there was a cloud of darkness. Of our six hours, three of those hours were of darkness. Now, it couldn't have been a, a solar eclipse because they, on, they only go on for several minutes. And actually, solar eclipses only happen, um, don't happen, I should say, um, when there's a full moon. And this was Passover time when uh, the, the moon was full, according to the lunar calendar. So it can't have been an eclipse. What was going on? We can pick out a couple of meanings amongst a few here. Firstly, the cloud of darkness shows that we see the judgment of God upon human sin and evil here. In the Old Testament, we see Moses, as he sought to free the Israelites from slavery and their oppressive structures of Pharaoh. Every time Pharaoh refused to let God's people go, a plague was sent down as judgment on the Egyptians and rescue for the Israelites. They increase in intensity. And the ninth one is this, darkness that covered the land. Darkness so thick that you could feel it. Darkness that disorientated and disintegrated. It was judgment. Later, prophets would talk of a day when God would judge against sin and evil once and for all. In Isaiah 13, uh, says this, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. Now it's easier to talk about the brokenness in our world and in its systems, especially in a time as we are in today. But there's also a twistedness and a deception in the desires and devices of my own heart as well. A rebellion and a disobedience in each of our hearts against God's invitation to us, against God's good law. 
There's a faithlessness in, in chasing after the wind, an apathy to his sacrifice of unconditional love, his joining, or our joining with the greed and injustices of our society. These are all there in our hearts. The cloud of darkness shows the reality of sin and brokenness that requires action. Darkness comes that disorientates us, that disintegrates all around us, that requires judgment, that requires a cross. That's what this darkness shows. Secondly, this darkness is a sign of the light being extinguished. We read in Genesis that before God created the universe, chaos and darkness was all that there was darkness and disorder. And into this darkness that was upon the face of the deep, God says, let there be light. And there is light. With his powerful word, he brings light where there had only been darkness. And then we are told that this word that was in the beginning, which was with God, that was God, in him was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is described as the light of the world. And so this is not merely the death of an exemplary man. No, here at Golgotha, the place of the skull, creation goes dark in mourning for its maker. Here on the cross, the human form of the creator of all, the Lord of the sun and the moon, the hands that flung stars into space were being nailed to a tree. When Jesus is dying on the cross, the light of the world is shut off. The cloud of darkness shows the monumental and cosmic moment that the light of the world is extinguished for that moment. And the horror of the brokenness of sin of this world and of my heart that requires judgment. So the question for us to consider, what darkness is disorientating you right now? In what ways is darkness disintegrating your life and your relationships? What is the darkness that you fear? And what if the darkness you feel is part of the darkness of that cloud on Calvary? After the cloud, we have a cry. Verse 34 says this, On the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was three in the afternoon. Jesus cries out the first line that we see in Psalm 22. Now, whether it was true forsakenness that he was feeling from the Father or appointing to that whole Psalm, one thing is for sure, he feels it in himself. He experiences it in himself. Now, people mishear him calling for Elijah, who was seen as one of the deliverers um, of, of, um, of Israel in the Jewish tradition, and one who was believed to have just been taken up to heaven and so avoided death. And so they think he's calling Elijah for help. Help me, get me off here. So someone runs to fill a sponge with sour wine, which is the Gatorade energy drink of the day, and lifts it to Jesus' lips, and then he stands back, seeing if Elijah will come and take him down. Those who were there said, you saved others, but you can't save yourself. Save yourself, come on down, Jesus. Now's your chance. But no, there was no saving of himself because only in giving of himself could he save others. Only in dying this way in this time could he achieve what he had come to do. There is one final scream, verse 37. 
and Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus Christ on the cross is taking on the darkness. We said that the light of the world is shut off on the cross, but the light of the world is taking on the darkness of the world. And what he bears is not just the weight of his own body as it slowly asphyxiates, but in himself he bears the darkness, the sin and evil of this world. He absorbs in himself. It costs him his life. He dies for you and he dies for me. He dies because he bears the weight of that sin, because of the condition of this world. He dies to defeat sin and death. He dies because of love. Love, as we see in the cross, has scars. But real love always has scars. Love is always costly. Love is always sacrificial. We see this in mothers of newborn babies. We know mothers who are in the first few months of a baby's life, they lose plenty of sleep, right? The baby um, gets sleep and gets nourishment at night because the mother loses sleep. But did you know that mothers lose hair and their teeth are more fragile during the first few months of the child's life? Just when the baby is starting to grow teeth and hair, the mothers lose strength in theirs. You could say that's love. I asked a couple of people uh, for advice this last weekend, uh, one about insurance and one about some finances, one by email, one by phone. And I realized with the time that they used to help me, they lost time with their family, what they wanted to do what they wanted to do with their Saturday as they gave up themselves and their time for me. Love always kind of costs something and love is paying that cost regardless. Now there are lots of pictures of what is happening on the cross. The Passover lamb, the goat driven into the wilderness, the ransom, the substitute, the victor on the field of battle, the representative man. We need to make room for all the biblical images. But, but Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge says this, the motive of substitution rightly understood is present behind and in all the other motives. Moreover, it has features that we cannot do without. There is something deep in the human psyche that responds to the idea of substitution, someone who dies in my place so that I may live. With love, there is always substitution. There is always an exchange. Someone needs to sacrifice. Someone needs to bear that cost. And so Fleming Rutledge gives the illustration of, of Katniss Everdeen that when a very young girl is chosen by lot to fight to the death as part of the Hunger Games, while her big sister steps forward and volunteers to take her place, becoming an inspiration for aspiring female kick-asses all over the world. Think of all the films that have ever made you cry. It's okay, you don't have to admit to anyone that you have done, but haven't they all been about sacrificial kind of substitutionary love? Think of Gran Torino, of Dead Poet Society, of Saving Private Ryan, or if you like, Lion King and Frozen. Just don't mention the Titanic and Rose on that piece of wood. We all know she could have done a little more for Jack in that moment, tried just a little bit harder. We have examples of this kind of sacrificial love as we fight this virus globally. 
a priest in Bergamo, northern Italy, 72-year-old Don Giuseppe Berardelli, was suffering from the coronavirus and was given a ventilator by his parish. They bought it for him. They had joined together to get him one because they knew that he had breathing issues. He didn't want it, he didn't take it, he didn't accept its use. Instead, he asked for it to be given to someone who needed it more than him, someone who had longer to live, perhaps. It was given to a younger person that he didn't know. And while that younger person lived, this priest died. I wonder, can you firstly imagine giving that up, this offer of life? Or can you imagine being the recipient of that gift, of the use of that ventilator that gave, that would have given you life? How it would have affected you? What if all these illustrations point to what was happening on the cross? What if we are moved by this kind of love? Because this kind of love is God's kind of love. It's knitted into the fabric of who we are as, as people, that we are uh, touched by its power and its beauty. My favorite verse is this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus bears the sin upon that cross taking the weight of our sin, our brokenness, and giving us something that we don't deserve. Standing before the cross, we see both our worth and our, and our struggle. We see both our worth and our unworthiness. We see the greatness of our sin in causing Jesus to die so horrifically, yet we get a glimpse of the greatness of that love and that he chose to die for us. And so the question for us to, to ponder, what do you need to dwell on today? What would you do well to spend time thinking about um, this afternoon? His love or, or your sin? What part of this great exchange needs to penetrate your heart this afternoon? After the cloud and the cry, we zoom out. The writer, like a filmmaker, zooms out from the cross and refocuses somewhere else. We get taken to the temple. And verse 38 says this, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And so we have the cloud and the cry, and now we get the curtain. Why are we given this detail about curtains? It's a bit random, isn't it? Well, let me tell you about the temple where this curtain was. The temple was a building that spoke to us of the kingliness, the majesty, the purity, the bigness of God, and also of how we are separate from him. He is holy, and there's a separateness that comes between us. Now, the temple was made up of a series of rooms and courts. The first room was called the Court of the Gentiles. The non-Jews uh, could only go that far. The second room was called the women's court. That was as far as Jewish women could go. Not politically correct, I know. The third room was called the men's court. That was the limit for ordinary mortals. No one could go further than that unless they were a priest. 
they get to go to the priest's court where there were lots of rooms within rooms. And the innermost room was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies. Only one man, the high priest, only once a year on the Day of Atonement would be able to enter through the curtain and into this room. He'd have to go through a very precise and deliberate process of washing and purification. He would go in carrying the blood of an animal. He would be acknowledging the seriousness of sin and the need for a sacrifice. Now, the animal's blood would be sprinkled as an act of confession and of cleansing. And even though the high priest was as clean as humanly possible, except for maybe bathing in bleach, he would go behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, knowing that he might just die. The holiness of the Holy of Holies might just burn him up. And so, as a precaution, the other priests would tie a rope, apparently, around him, just in case he died in there. So they wouldn't have to go in and get him. They could just pull him out. The temple was a series of separating rooms. There was a hierarchy of religious accessibility. The curtain was the symbol of the separation. And this might sound distant to you, a little archaic, but let me bring it closer to home. Many of us know what this kind of curtain actually feels like if you've ever been on a plane. Most of us, when we've gone onto a plane, uh, will have had to carry on our hand luggage and drag ourselves past first class or, or business class. The people there, as you walk past, are kind of all sprawled out hands against their, the back of their heads with their big seats and their drinks, getting ready to be fanned uh, by big leaves and getting given grapes to eat, or that's what I imagine happens. And as you get yourself settled um, in your seat, you just put your bag up in the tiny little space that you've got there. You're kind of squeezed in with all the other people. As you get settled in, the ultimate indignity, they draw that curtain. You didn't want to look anyway, did you? As it would kind of make you cry. But the curtain is as loud as an, an announcement as it would be if it came from the, the loudspeaker. There is a superior class of people on this plane and you are not it. The curtain separates you from them. You don't get to look at them and actually they don't want to look at you. Many of us know what it means to have the curtain drawn on us because of our skin color or skin tone or skin regime, perhaps our home address, the size of our home, the lack of a home, and so on and so forth. Many of us know that. We know what it's like to feel unwelcome. The curtain on that plane separates us, and actually the curtain of the temple was designed to separate too. It was 60 feet high, 30 feet wide, and uh, two hand widths wide. Ten times my height, thickest curtain that you've ever seen. No light is coming through there in the morning. No need for a blackout curtain. No person is accidentally going to go through there. Once a year, one person goes through. To everyone else, it says no entry. You're separate, keep out, you're unwelcome. Beware of the holy of holies. And as Jesus dies, what happens? We get taken from the cross to this curtain. 
The curtain is torn in two from top to bottom, not from the bottom up. It's an act of God. It's done from the top to the bottom. In that moment that Jesus died on the cross, 3 p.m. on that cross, as the six hours came to its conclusion, as the darkness came to its end, all such distinctions came to an end. There was no longer separation between the first class and everyone else. No separation between the self-proclaimed righteous people and the ungodly. You didn't need to be a high priest or a priest or a man or a Jew. The curtain was torn in two. It lay on the floor. It no longer had any power anymore. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He died for those on the wrong side of the tracks, on the wrong side of the town, on the wrong side of the temple. And so Paul, St. Paul writes this, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The way is open, all are welcome now. And so there's a final C, I've said cloud, cry, curtain, and there's a centurion that tells us something about what goes on as well. Verse 39 says this, and when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he says, truly, this man was the son of God. This Roman non-Jew, battle-hardened soldier and professional executioner who would have seen hundreds of crucifixions, hardened to the screams, numbed to the horror, is the first to get it. He's the most unlikely person, an unnamed foreigner, but he gets what the Gospel of Mark tells us in its first verse, the beginning of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He had looked into the face of Jesus in those six hours. He saw his eyes as he cried his last, and he realized that he was different to anyone else that this death changed life. The curtain is torn in two. The way is open for anyone and everyone. How far off and how unlikely do you feel? Well, all are welcome. The way is open for you as unlikely as you may feel. So the question for us is, how does the curtain change your view of what happened on the cross? How does the curtain change your view of what happened on the cross and how does the centurion and his reaction invite you to react? Six hours on that one Friday, six extraordinary hours that stand out like a skyscraper would in the flatness of Saskatchewan. Six hours that have been discussed, derided and debated for two millennia. What does that Friday mean? What makes it good? Well, it means for us that because of the cross, we get to glimpse an ocean of love and light out there for us. Even as we feel trapped in a time or a small piece of darkness where we are right now, it feels intense and dark because evil and sin and brokenness are real. But the cross shows us that it is passing. There is light and life beyond the reach of darkness because darkness of, of evil and sin fell on the heart of Jesus Christ. Believe him, turn to his face, see his scar-shaped love. Allow his face and his wounds shine light into your darkness. 
as we wait this Good Friday, as Saturday comes and as Easter Sunday arrives, allow his light begin to well up and to, to shine light into your darkness. The cloud on that Friday shows that judgment has come. Darkness can't be ignored. The cry of Jesus on that Friday shows us that he takes on that judgment and absorbs the darkness for love. The curtain is torn in two on that Friday and it shows us that the way is open for all of us now, all of us, no matter how unlikely we may be. Six hours, six hours on that Friday. What will you do with those six hours on that Friday?